Amen. Man, man, we are so glad that you chose to worship uh, with us at Lindsay Lane uh, North today. Man, as we continue in this Advent series, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3 uh, in your Bibles is where we're going to be this week. We have talked through, and listen, I know, all right, if you are, have you followed the Advent season for any amount of time, you know that there is really five themes, right? We've got the hope and peace and love, which is today, uh, joy, and then Christ. Uh, and so, but as we are tracking through our uh, Advent devotionals as well, so hopefully you are going through uh, with your families, you should be on week three, day four. Uh, I would just encourage you, some of you that may be struggling with that, uh, some of you, this may be the first time that you've ever went through with your family in any kind of devotional. Uh, I just pray that you'd stick with it. All right, just continue uh, to do that, to press on. Give yourself grace. If you're missing some days, give yourself some grace. Uh, that is such a, such a neat tool in how we disciple our family through this season. We keep them focused on Christ. Uh, but as we, as we continue this week uh, in, our, in our series, what I really want to show you, right, is how hope, peace, love, and joy they're embodied in the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ, right? Christ is number five. Christ is the, the fifth candle. Uh, if we're lighting candles, he's the fifth candle. But truthfully, Christ is pervasive through everything. He is our hope. He is the one in whom we hope for. He is our peace. He is, Christ is our peace. He settled our debt. He is our he is uh, our love. God is love, and he has pursued us in, our, in his love. And then finally, in him is lasting, complete joy. And so he embodies all that we will continue, uh, that we talk about. But we begin in Genesis chapter 3 as we talk about in this God with us series, Emmanuel being with us means that we are a people that have God's love within us, and so it affects how we live our life. From the hope that was prophesied of the serpent crusher in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to the hope of the Messiah who will not, has not just come, but who will come again, to the peace lost in Eden that would finally be restored in the new heaven and the new earth, we see the same thing in God's love throughout the narrative, the entire canon of Scripture. God's love is consistent. It's consistent. Now, what I will tell you is our love in Scripture is not always consistent, but God's love is. In fact, more often than not, God, the message of Scripture is that God is pursuing us despite the fact that we don't love him. Despite the fact that we are rebelling against him, God loves us. And I think it's important that we understand, I've heard pastors say before that the Bible is God's love letter toward us. And, and that's not wrong but that's not the primary purpose of, of God's word. The reason why love is important for us to emphasize is not because God's word is his love letter to us. Um, because God's, the purpose of God's word is not 
to communicate love to us, it's to reveal God to us. That is why we have God's word. So a lot of times we'll have questions sometimes. Man, I don't understand how this works and how that works. And sometimes when we're going through things, we have questions and we bring them to God and we look at his word and go, God, I need answers. Well, God's word doesn't primarily exist to give you answers. Now, we can find answers in God's word. But God's word exists to reveal God. To reveal him to us. And so we focus on love in as much as God is love. That God, part of God's nature is that he is love. And so that's why we emphasize it today. That God is love and we see it throughout scripture. There are certainly times when man fails to love God. But there is never a point in history that we do not see God's abounding love toward man. We see it in Genesis 3. We've been in Genesis 3 the last three weeks, right? It's kind of like when you go to the movies and you anticipate that 25, 35, 45 minutes of previews. So you show up a little late, like the pro tip is to show up a little late and then you get to watch me and have to watch all the previews. But when you show up with your family, sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's not because you got kids and it's just hard to get them places. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Uh, you show up and you hear the main character's voice before you round that corner and you actually see the screen and you realize, dadgummit, right? We've missed part of the movie. In some movies, it's okay. Some movies, you can miss the first five minutes. Other movies, you are lost. Let me tell you about God's Word. The story of God's Word is, if you miss the first few chapters, you have missed a ton. In fact, all of Scripture does not make sense unless we understand it in the framework of the very beginning. And so in Genesis chapter 3, right, we have the fall. And the first thing that we see about God's love is that it clothed man's shame. God's love clothed man's shame. Look at verse 6 in Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the, good, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and so that the tree was to be desired and to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So, I used to be a youth pastor. And inevitably, it would always come up if, specifically, Lindsay Lane Christian Academy, the time that I am remembering most clearly, uh, I was asked as a youth pastor who is used to being delicate in certain matters, I was asked to give the purity talk to our boys, the, the boys at Lindsay Lane Christian Academy. <laughs> okay, I was informed that the girls would be separate getting a talk from someone else, a lady. And I just remember sitting in front of their baseball field and talking about things and them beginning to snicker and to beginning to nudge one another and laugh, I started thinking about it. I, I took them all the way back to Genesis 3. 
When man sinned, we screwed up everything. God created man. God created all of creation. And he said it was good. And so for a perfect God to claim something to be good, it must maintain the same standard of perfection as God. And he placed man in the middle of perfection. And the man and the woman were naked and they were unashamed. But something happened. In Genesis 3, when they ate of the fruit, part of the serpent's half-truth came to light. They did understand that they were right and wrong. They understood the difference between right and wrong. And they understood that they were wrong. They understood right and wrong from eating the fruit, and immediately this provoked and evoked in them a sense of shame. This was the first time that shame rears its head in creation, that man and wife, Adam and Eve, were ashamed, and they began to cover themselves with foliage, right, with With leaves and vines, they tried to sew together clothing to cover their shame. When we talked to those teenage boys, I remember telling them, if there is a tendency in us to snicker and to think it's funny and to, you know, text each other, you know, off-color things, if there's a tendency in our heart to do that, we need to understand that it was initially not so. Man broke God's perfect design. Man twisted what God intended in holiness and perfection. Man broke. And we see this pervasive throughout Scripture, right? It wasn't just sexuality that was affected. It was all of it. Sinful actions carry with it a sense of guilt and shame. The word shame in both the Greek and the Hebrew carry with it the idea of humiliation, disgrace, and even insult. The idea is if you knew what I was, what I had done, you would insult me. I would be further shamed. You would, you would hurt my feelings. If you knew what I did, you would treat me different. It would insult me and it would hurt my feelings. And so what man has been doing from Genesis 3 until now is we have been trying our best to cover our shame. We want to cover it. I don't want anybody to know. That's one way. Right? We, we lock it away in our minds. Yeah, this, this horrible thing happened, this horrible event in our life. I did this horrible thing. I'm not going to tell anyone about it. Many of us hide it by internalizing our sin. The shame is just too great, and so in order to not become an insult for, of others, to be humiliated, we internalize our shame. Other people... Others tried to hide it away by manipulating the parameters of right and wrong. What happened in Eden was that man understood right and wrong. That happened. So within man, there is an understanding of right and wrong. And if we can't internalize it, what we do is 
in our effort to cover our shame, we draft a narrative in which right and wrong are not actually right and wrong. We manipulate the guidelines of what is good and what is evil in order to cast ourselves in a positive light. That's why we find ourselves in the culture that we live in today. It is man's attempt to cover our sin. If we can't control it on the front end and internalize it and keep it to ourselves, then we have to create a narrative in which the lines of right and wrong are just muddied enough to make us look more presentable. But the reality is, we are powerless to cover our shame. We all have our Eden moments. We don't have to look at Adam and Eve and go, how dare you? We live, this was the birthplace of original sin. We all live with the curse of sin. Um, When we are at our worst, when we're at our most unlovely though, when Adam and Eve sinned for the first time, God's love remained. While man was at their worst, at their most unlovely, God was pursuing them in love. Read Genesis 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God knew that the covering man would try to provide for themselves for their sin would be as ineffective as fig leaves. So God provided another way to clothe them. But can you imagine, right, we're, living, we're in the fall, you start cutting down trees, you start trimming leaves, and you start trying to hide yourself with some of these leaves, the leaves begin to die, right? Good luck trying to keep them sewed together. Can you imagine the hassle that it was? They had sewed together fig leaves. They were in perfect obedience to God, and so they were without shame. Now they're in disobedience to God, and now they are hiding from each other. They're hiding from God. They're hiding from everyone because there's shame now involved, but they're inadequate, Fig leaves are inadequate to get the job done. And so God provided skins, animal skins. Now, could God have created those skins out of nothing? Well, sure, he created the animals. He could totally have created the the skins. But many scholars believe this is the first time life was taken. In the narrative of scripture, this is the first time in all creation that life was taken. Why do we believe that? Well, because I don't see a whole lot of skinless animals running around, right? So to remove their skin is to remove their life, is to kill them, right? And so what we believe to be is this is the first example of God clothing man's sin by providing a sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There's no covering that's made for sin. And so an animal, we believe, we infer to believe that an animal had to die in order for the nakedness of Adam and Eve to be clothed. Many point to this as the first death of a living thing recorded in scripture. Remember, the, the ability to eat animals was not in place until after Noah, till Noah's time. Right, And so they weren't eating animals at that time. And this was the very real ramification of sin so that God could cover the shame of man. 
God, and, and we see that continuing throughout the Old Testament because God doesn't just clothe our shame, man's shame in Genesis. He continues to cover man's shame. God's love covered man's shame. Time tracks on. As we read in scripture, all of the stories that we've read about in VBS and in Sunday school and in home groups and in, in all the places that we hear it on Sunday mornings, most of those stories deal not just with God's goodness, but with man's failure, does it not? As we track through, in the days of Noah, the Bible says of man, everyone, everyone's mind and heart was fixed on evil continually. They were not neutral toward God, but in their shame, they were enemies of God. Their minds were fixed on evil continually. Look at Babel. Right? What was the goal of Babel? We will build a structure to heaven, not to be close to God, but to be God, to be equal with God. This was man's attempt to be God. We see it in the sons of Israel who would sell their brother and then lie to their father of what had happened and Joseph would be sold into slavery and ultimately come to Egypt. Where in Egypt, he would inform Pharaoh of a famine and in that middle of that famine, who would come knocking but his own brothers. And instead of being vindictive and angry and vengeful, Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And he provided for the entire lineage of the house of Israel. And they stayed in Egypt. Well, fast forward. They're enslaved in Egypt. And God raises, raises up a deliverer. A man named Moses who would set his people free, lead his people on dry ground through the Red Sea. Surely, after seeing all of the plagues of Egypt, surely after seeing God's incredible deliverance, they would get it right and they would serve God faithfully and love him. No. Even then, they reject God and his commandments. So God speaks to Moses and he provides another covering. He provides the law. The law in which if you sin, there's a covering that can be made. Now it's got to be done God's way and in God's timing and how God says to do it. But here is a way. It was a sacerdotal system. It was a priestly sacrificial system that would provide a way for the sins of man who would continue throughout scripture. We're consistent, right? We are super consistent. We're still sinning today, right? There was a way that they could provide atonement, a covering for sin. Listen to what Leviticus 16, 11 says. God in his love created a law system in which man could still have fellowship with a holy God. This was done on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Leviticus 16 gives us insight into this, what this process looked like. 
Aaron, who was the first Levitical priest, he was of the tribe of Levi, right? He was the high priest, functioning as a high priest in Israel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. How do you present a bull as a sin offering? You kill it. In the same way that you provide skins to cover the shame of sin, you kill the bull. And so the bull has to die, right? And he shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. So the high priest would go into the holy of holies with the blood of this bull that had been sacrificed And he would make a covering for sin. In fact, it was even more detailed than that because they would have to come in with a censer that had the perfect blend of coal, hot coals, and incense so that the entire Holy of Holies would be filled with so much smoke that the presence of God that met with man in the Holies of Holies would be clouded out. They couldn't see clearly the presence of God or they would die. And so they would... The room would fill with smoke. They would come in with the blood of the bull for their own sin and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and on the floor in front of the mercy seat. And they would make a covering. The word atonement literally means to coat or to cover. They would cover their sins. And then they would offer for the sins of the people of Israel. Verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. That is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. There was actually two goats. One was the goat that would die. The other was the goat that would be the scapegoat. It's where we get that word. The idea was the goat that would live, the goat that wouldn't be physically killed, would be taken around to every household in Israel and they would touch the head of this goat, symbolically passing on their sin to this goat. Then the goat would be turned loose and it was never to return again. And so... That would happen with one goat. The second goat would be sacrificed and then the blood would be brought, as it says, as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling uh, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement. What's the word? A covering for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people. This was done because the people were unclean. God is holy and the people are unclean, so a covering had to be made. And because of their transgressions and all of their sins, and so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. This was the way God in his love, who has no business being with unclean man, still pursued us with his love through a law system, through a sacrificial system. When man would sin, an animal would die, and their sins would be covered. Atonement is the key word in this chapter. God provided man with instructions on how to cover their sins what we have. That's what the law is. Here is the rule book on how you cover your sins. But this, however, would still not be enough. This, according to Hebrews chapter 10, looking back, the writer of Hebrews says, here's the problem with this system. It covers sin, but it doesn't change the heart of the worshiper. 
So the worshiper makes this big external show, but his heart is unchanged. His heart is still unclean, and so God had to provide another way. We don't just celebrate a God who has clothed our shame. We don't just serve a God who has covered our shame and made a way for us to cover our shame. We serve a God whose love conquered our shame. He has put an end to our shame. And we find that in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. The problem with the covering for sin is that it had to be done over and over and over again. Our hearts were never pure. They were never purified before a holy God. And so God had to make a way for man to truly be in relationship with him. Verse 9. And this, the love of God, has been made, was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world. So that in the fullness of or excuse me, so that we might live through him. He sent his son into the world so that we would live through him. In this, the love of God was made manifest. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Galatians chapter 4 tells us in the fullness of time, God sent his son. In the fullness of what time? Once the fullness of time had been accomplished, once man had proven definitively throughout the Old Testament history that we could not save ourselves, that we could not cover our sins adequately enough to make us clean, God sent Jesus. You may have memorized it this way. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God loved us more than just to cover our sin. He conquered our sin. The word that is used in 1 John 4, the word propitiation, is similar to atonement, but they are not the same word. There are two different Greek words used here. The word propitiation is not necessary is not a covering or a veil. This is when we hear those two words, okay? These are big words, right? Atonement, propitiation. What do they mean? Atonement means to cover or to coat. The word propitiation means uh, to it means expiation. It means to completely pacify and make amends. As we talked about last week, there was a conflict between us and God. There was a gulf fixed that we could not get to God as imperfect humanity. There was an amends that could not be made, not because we could sin less, but because we have sin at all. There was conflict here. 
And that played out until Jesus came. He is our peace. God, through his love, took the wrath of sin. God is a holy God. And there is one way God can respond to sin, and that is in wrath. He's not holy unless he, has, unless he treats sin with wrath. But what Jesus did for us, this is how David Platt described it. He said, it's as if we are standing in the lower portion of the Hoover Dam. And the river that the dam is holding is the wrath of God. And in a moment and in an instant, if that dam were to disintegrate, that the entire Colorado River would be coming, bearing down on us, certain to destroy us, to kill us with unspeakable force. That the entire river of the wrath of God was focused upon us, was coming upon us, and in just the moment that we would be impacted and destroyed forever, Jesus stood in front of us and he endured the full wrath. He absorbed the wrath of God in river form flowing down to destroy us. He absorbed every bit of that wrath. Jesus took our punishment. What did we just sing? Why should I gain from his reward? I can't give an answer. This I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. We were in a debt that we could not pay. Though God has infinite love for us, we could not access his love because of the sin within our hearts. But Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. The word propitiation means to appease or to satisfy. He removed God's wrath by focusing it upon himself. He was crushed for so that we could be in a right love relationship with God. Whereas atonement was man-focused, true redemption would have to be God-focused. It was God providing the way, not man with instruction, with a rule book, right? With a how-to manual, trying to cover sin, it would be God that had to step in to redeem the hearts of mankind. God, Christ was appeasing the wrath of God toward us and toward our sin. Whereas atonement was man-focused, true redemption would have to be God-focused. In his great love, God would allow his son to suffer the brunt force of all of man's sins, past, present, and future, and would suffer his wrath on sin in his body. 
This is what we find about the love of Christ. And so we see it in Revelation chapter 19, and we'll, we'll read this and we'll, we're going to be done. In Revelation chapter 19, we get insight into what this looks like for us in the end time. Right? And so let's, let's just read there in verse 19, beginning in, verse, in chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The bride is there. The lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. We use the terminology a lot of times of a robe of righteousness. A robe of righteousness that the bride is adorned in. As traditional weddings, today even, the bride would have wear white. In that day, they would do the same thing. And the bride would make herself ready. She was to be pure without spot or blemish. It's symbolic, right? We understand this imagery in a marriage today. It says the bride would make herself ready. But church, there's a problem with that. There's a problem with me Parading myself as though I have no sin. Though I am righteous. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. You can write these references down and look at them later. It says that our righteous deeds. So the deeds in our mind that we think are righteous. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. A filthy rag. The best that we got is nowhere near purity and perfection. Romans 3 would double down on this idea, as Paul quoting scripture would say, there is none righteous, no, not one. When I read that the bride makes themselves ready, we are tempted in our mind to think that the bride has done a whole lot of things to look better in the eyes of God, but that is not what we see happening because it doesn't matter how hard I try, it doesn't matter how hard I, try, I, I, I do better, I, the best I have is dirty rags. The human condition has not changed since Eden. For me to parade up here as though I am pure and holy is simply a lie. When I read that the bride makes herself ready, I immediately recoiled because I thought, I don't deserve this. I know me. I know the thoughts of my heart. But look what it says in verse 8. It was granted her 
to clothe herself, clothe herself. It was granted her. What does that mean? This robe of righteousness that we will receive as Christ's bride is not earned, it is gifted. It is given. It's not on our own merit. It is on the merit of the one who was worthy to wear the robe. It is his righteousness. And we see that, right? Look what Romans 5 tells us. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have been declared righteous by faith. Remember John 3, 16? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, what? Believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It is through our belief, it's through our faith. Philippians 3, Paul tells the church at Philippi that we are to be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Church, it has been granted to us. It has been gifted to us. Charles Spurgeon talked of it as an alien righteousness. A righteousness that none of us have any idea about has been gifted to us. And so to make ourselves ready is not to try harder and be better. To make ourselves ready is to express ultimate faith and trust in a God who has provided everything we need. In his love, he sent Jesus. I am pure only in as much as Christ has declared me pure and declared me clean. And I seek that identity in him. This is what it means for us to have this robe of righteousness is not done by us. It is done by what Jesus did for us. He bore the weight of sin. This is what it means for him to conquer sin for us. He did away with it. So we don't have to cover it anymore. We confess it and we experience deliverance. And it changes how we live. The greater context of John 4 is not about the love that God has shown the church. It's about in light of the love that God has shown the church, how we are to love others. Uh, we read verses 9 and 10, right? Look at verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us, not love, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Listen to what he says in conclusion of that. Beloved, if God, this is verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I think I've made very clear that I didn't earn God's love for me. And you didn't either. But you know what? We owe this news to a world that also does not know or earn God's love. The beauty of grace is it makes life unfair. The fact that I 
would gain from Christ's reward is not fair. The only reason is God's love. And so I owe it to a lost and dying world to echo, to reverberate the love of Christ in my life to others so that they would experience the love of Christ. That's what this season is about. Because God has so loved me, I am to so love one another. I'm to love each other. Is that how we live our life? Is that how you live your life? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Boy, it's a beautiful picture, the wedding feast. We aren't just, we don't deserve the invite, much less to be the bride. But the lamb who was slain says for it to be so. He has declared us righteous. And as those who have been declared righteous, we are to operate in that love. He has clothed us, he has covered us, and he has conquered the shame and the guilt of sin for us. So if you as a child of God in this room are living with the weight of the shame of the mistakes that you have made, you are denying what Christ has set you free from. He bore that shame on the cross so that we can live a new life. If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're the most important person in this room. His love pursues you, not because you deserve it. In fact, in spite of the fact that you don't deserve it, but his love pursues you still. If you're here today and you would like to respond to that. Oh, it's going to look like you're taking the initiative. I mean, it may be you walking to the center aisle, coming to speak to me at the front, but I want you to know you are not taking the initiative. That is what Christ did for you. He sought you when you were at your most unlovely and made a way for you to experience the love of God through Christ Jesus. If you need to respond to that today, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you and let you know how you can know, how you can be in this relationship with a God who loves you so dearly. But if you're here and and maybe... Maybe you know somebody that's outside that love and maybe, maybe... You've been living your life for all the wrong priorities, selfishly, the love of the world, the love of things, the love of what is, seems urgent in our life, in our temporary life, may have won your time and your schedule, and maybe you need to surrender that to Jesus today. Maybe you need to spend some time at this altar lifting up, praying for somebody that you know is disconnected from the love of God, that God has put you in their life to reach with his gospel. Maybe you need to respond. Maybe you need to intercede for them. This altar will be open. I'm here. Would love to speak to anyone with any decision that needs to be made today. Would you respond to the initiative, the love initiative of God in your life?
Would you just respond to him? Unconcerned about who's around, what others will think. Would you seek to please and to love the one who has conquered your sin and your shame? Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for your sacrifice for us as we have already declared through our Lord's Supper. We are thankful for that. I pray for someone in this room that is outside of that love. God, I pray that they would respond to you in faith and trust and in hope. God, that through faith, they would clothe themselves with your righteousness. You have granted to them access if they would just respond in faith. I pray for the one that needs you as Lord and Savior. I pray for the one that needs to make another decision whatever that decision may be. The one that may need to do business here at this altar in prayer. Lord, we just pray that you would be free to move in our lives and in our hearts as you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? As we sing, would you come?